Amen. Father, we pray your blessing upon your word this morning, Lord, that you might give us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive what you have to say to us. And Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are over us. And Lord, we pray now that you would do a perfect work in us that only you could do, Father. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's get our Bibles out open to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, You can grab that pew Bible in front of you and open up to page 1355. You'll find Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And we've been preaching through this book for uh, the last several months, verse by verse. And we've made it to uh, almost to the end of chapter 3. We've been in this section where we've been calling it Christmas in Colossians, where Paul is dealing with the family. And it's a perfect time for us to be having this uh, conversation. It's just the providence of God that we are here during this season. And so it's been uh, very fruitful and productive. And I pray it will be this morning as well. And what we've learned over these weeks together in Colossians is that really Colossians is a book of fullness. It's a book of, of the fullness and the supremacy and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first two chapters were really about proclaiming the fullness, laying a foundation of who Jesus is and how he is the fullness in all things. And then we shifted gears and we really got into practicing fullness. And so we talked about marriage last week. And we're, so we're in a section where Paul is really dealing with domestic fullness. Just before that, you remember Pastor Rod preached on uh, our personal fullness and our own Uh, in our own personal uh, approach to life and the way that the Lord would have us to take certain things off and put other things on in their place. And so this uh, brings us to uh, the fullness in our relationships and our family and how uh, really who Christ is should pierce far beyond the bounds in our life of merely uh, who he is in the sanctuary, but it should come into who he is in our living rooms, in our kitchen, in our bedrooms, and in the innermost relationships of our life. And I think uh, there's some challenges to having conversations like we've had over these weeks because I know that um, if we're not careful, we'll just build up a wall uh, because maybe we have been preconditioned a little wrongly. You know, last week, I, I so appreciate all of the Uh, letters and emails that I received from so many of you, just uh, so grateful for uh, a a true and honest understanding of submission and uh, what a blessing that is and that those verses were never meant to condemn you or to distress you, but they should delight your heart when the Bible talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. And so again, today we come to a passage where it could very easily... Uh, throw walls up around us, whether it be as parents or whether it be as children. Uh, All of us are someone's children, and most of us are parents. And uh, between the combination of those two things, there's a great opportunity for the enemy to come and really steal this seed away before it has a chance to really grow into the soil of our hearts. So before we begin, I want to say a few things to you with regards to Um, this issue of contagious parenting. First of all, there is nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing that you can do to ensure 
that your, your children are going to turn out perfect. You might as well just uh, throw that uh, idea out of your head. It's wrong. It's ridiculous. It's only going to set you up for utter and complete disaster. Um, the only people that believe that are people who don't have kids yet or have really small children. The rest of us, well, we understand the reality of parenting. And uh, what we need to understand is that they're, they're not always our kids, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, no matter how biblical we are in our parenting, uh, our kids are not always going to do the right thing. They're not always going to make the right choices. They have a free will, just like you and me. And they're going to, uh, they're going to be tempted, and they're going to make choices, and they're going to face consequences, and that's just the way it's going to be. And we just need to understand and realize that, that there are going to be times when they fall. And so what we need to do as parents, uh, we need to do all that we can do to prepare them so that when they face these various choices in their life, uh, they are prepared to uh, navigate through those times. They're, they're really, we have an equipping ministry. That's our ministry as parents is to equip our children for the lives that lie before them. And then uh, for those of you in the room that are children, those of you that are students in the room, you need to uh, understand that God's called you to very specific things and you need to do all that you can do to obey the Lord and what he's called you to do. And if we do those two things, we can approach this rightly and God can work mightily in our, in our hearts. The second thing I want you to realize is really the enemy always wants us to understand Scripture out of context. Because if he, can get you to, if he can get you out of context, then what happens is he can convince you of all sorts of different things. He can twist the word into meaning something it was never intended to mean. And so we want to see today that uh, the, the context of the passage that we're talking about is in the context of Paul, who has laid this foundation of the fullness of Christ, and now how the fullness of Christ plays out in our relationships. This shouldn't be a passage of Scripture that defeats us or condemns us. It ought to uh, delight us and it ought to elevate us. It ought to give us great hope. The simplicity of, the, of God's statement about parents and parenting and children and their response to parenting shouldn't frustrate you. You should be glad. I mean, would you rather, so many times as parents, we wish God would say so much more that he would answer all of our little questions and he, but you know, that would just, that would just make it more difficult for us. I'm very grateful that God is very simplistic and straightforward with us. And God uh, sends this particular word that we're going to look at this morning into a culture where really in a, in a Roman culture, in the society in which this was first received, uh, parents and fathers in particular had this enormous um, level of control over their families and not in a good way. And, and a father could uh, just with, with a, a decision, spur of the moment decision, he could send his children into slavery he could even take their, have their life taken from them and uh, be perfectly within the bounds of the law as a father. And so there are, uh, I'm not going to bore you with the gory details, but under Roman law, uh, it, it was a horrible thing if a father uh, 
for example, wanted a son and was born a daughter, uh, much like some of the atrocities that have happened over these last decades in China with regards to uh, them trying to control the number of children and dictate the sexes of the children. Uh, it's just a very terrible thing. And so in the midst of that setting, the Bible comes with this amazing liberating, wonderful, instructive passage. In Colossians 3, we're simply going to look at two verses, verse 20 and 21. The Scripture says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, these two statements are very clear. They're very definitive. They're, They're teaching us that... Uh, discipline is really, it's, it's indispensable to a productive and full life. That for children, there must be discipline. And for fathers in particular, discipline must be administered correctly to yield that which what it was intended to yield. So for example, in Proverbs 22, the scripture says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. And so we see that there's a The scripture commands us not to neglect the rod, otherwise we hate the child, but that it must be done correctly, and if done so, it will drive foolishness out of the heart of our children. And so, if you just think that out, uh, what what happens there if that's neglected over the course of years? Well, if a five-year-old who is a compulsive liar is not dealt with correctly, then that five-year-old will grow up and become a husband or, a, do- uh, or a, a wife who is lying to their spouse and lying at work and lying to uh, all of their adult relationships because as they were young, they weren't correctly dealt with. Or even more obvious in our culture today would be a lack of respect for authority. When a child is growing up, they may be 10 or 11 years old and they begin to develop this uh, lack of respect for the authority around them, well, if that's ignored by the parents, it's going to yield a disaster in the future. Hence, if you talk to anyone today who is an employer, they're utterly frustrated. I have not had a conversation with somebody who is responsible for employing people, and I don't remember without the conversation simply turning to them in frustration, shaking their head, saying it's nearly impossible to find someone who has a decent work ethic. Who, uh, why? Well, because so many children are not brought up to respect authority, so when they enter the workplace, they're just constantly going from job to job to job to job. It's a disaster in every arena of their life. But it has to start early. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that if we endure chastening, God deals with us as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, the Lord wants us to understand that this chastening is done in love and that it is critical for the development of of a son or a daughter. And the evidence of godly parenting taking place in a home, I think, would be uh, that there is discipline in the heart of the child. So let's look at verse 20. 
The beginning of verse 20 says, children, obey your parents. Again, that, that I'm sure does not sound uh, liberating to your ears. It does not sound like, oh boy, this is going to be such an, an upbeat and wonderful conversation. But it is. The word obey, it really comes from a compound word that is to listen and then to be under. And so it's to listen under your parents is what the word really means. And then the scripture goes on to say, in all things. Now, this is exactly the conversation we had last week with regards to wives and their role as being submissive to their husbands when we said that uh, this is not blind obedience to an ungodly parent. This is not God saying, children, you're to obey your parents in all things, regardless of who they are or what they say. That anything that is asked or required of you that is unbiblical is always wrong. And if your parents ask you to do something uh, that is sinful, you ought not do that. It is always better to obey God than man, according to Acts chapter 5. Because the scripture goes on to say, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, it wouldn't be well-pleasing to the Lord if someone were requiring of you something that was unbiblical or sinful or wrong in nature. And so you ought to uh, take this for what it is clearly saying. Now, why is Paul, well, why has he sort of put the brakes on here at the end of uh, chapter 3 and started to focus on uh, these family relationships and make sure that we, similar to what he does at the end of the book of Ephesians, where he just stops and he, he starts having these conversations about husbands and about wives and about children and about how we relate to authority in our lives at work or whatever the case may be. Well, I think the scripture is trying to tell us that the family is going to determine the future. It is absolutely, positively going to determine the future. The family, the, the, the importance of the family in the word of God is always in the context of generations. It's not just one simple uh, conversation between uh, one husband and one wife or one set of parents or one parent and their children, but it's always generational. And remember in the uh, parallel passage from Ephesians 6, uh, Paul sort of expounds on this that it's uh, pleasing to the Lord and that it's right. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he goes on in Ephesians 6 to say, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And so there's this command to obey and to honor and this promise that in doing so, it may be well with you that you may live long on the earth. Now, how is obedience to parents going to extend your lifespan? How is it going to, how is this issue going to make you live longer on the earth? Why is this the, the commandment with promise? And what exactly is Paul trying to communicate to us here? Well, let's just think about it. What happens to a young person who who rejects the authority, the wisdom, and the guidance of their parent who is trying to lead them in what is pleasing unto the Lord? What is the natural outflow of that posture? 
Well, there's going to be decisions that are going to be made that are bad decisions. There's going to be a lack of wisdom. There's going to be an abundance of foolishness. Wherever there's an abundance of foolishness, there's going to be, uh, uh, there's going to be poor lifestyle choices. There's going to be, it's going to affect every area of a person's life. It's going to affect all the way down to uh, issues of, of health and wellness. A lack of discipline is going to have tremendous outflow in, your, uh, in your, your physical health. It's going to affect your, your financial health. It's going to affect your relational health. It's going to affect every area of your life. And certainly we would agree that there is this uh, clear correlation between good relationships, good choices, wisdom permeating one's life, and a good, prosperous, long life. Now, not always definitively does that. That doesn't mean that if you obey your parents that you're not going to get cancer or that there's not going to be some uh, uh, errant drunk driver that comes across the lane and hits you head on and and you uh, go to the Lord sooner than uh, people may have expected to. But regardless of that, overall, it's pretty obvious that obeying the authority that is meant to glorify God in your life is clearly going to lead to a more enhanced, wonderful, enjoyable, productive, God-glorifying life. So here's a command that we just basically have to look at. We have to back up from and we have to say, well, now, do I receive this or do I reject this? Now, I understand that most of our children aren't in here. Or our children are either in the East Sanctuary in Children's Church or they're back in the nursery, uh, not in here. What we have in here is some uh, students, but for the most part, our children aren't here. But it's important for us as parents to understand what the responsibility is for our children that we want to be early on instilling in them and building into them so that we're setting them up, we're equipping them to be successful in this arena. But then I thought about this and I thought, now what would I say to the students that are in the room right now? I would say to you teenagers, simply this. When was the last time that you told your parents, thank you, that you just simply went to your mom, your dad, and you just thank them for being your parents. Thank them for the struggles that they go through to provide for you, to protect for you, protect you, to nourish you. And and that you were, were, rather than being maybe critical or or rather than uh, dwelling upon the, the areas that may be deficient in your life or family, but that you were grateful to them for the effort that they put forth that would then... Uh, encourage them along this difficult road to continue to try to raise you for the glory of God. I think that there's great power in a heart of gratitude. And I'm very grateful for the opportunities that, uh, that I've had where my children were grateful. It was a great blessing to Lisa and I's heart when they're grateful. And when they're ungrateful, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a great discouragement to the heart of a parent. And then Paul, much like he does with husbands and wives, it seems like he, he's picking on wives in the previous two verses, which he's not, which we saw that last week. 
But then here, it clearly seems like he's picking on fathers, doesn't it, men? In other words, he drops this bomb on, uh, on us of what children ought to do, and then he turns around and sort of singles us out. Now, this word for fathers, it could be used, uh, it could be translated as parent, but I think that it's rightly translated here as father. I think this is uh, specifically addressed more towards fathers, although it is uh, towards both parents. But he says in verse 21, which is where we'll spend most of our time, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now this, uh, the best way to approach this is to focus on this issue of lest they become discouraged. I know that for the majority of my uh, Christian life, which has all been in adulthood, and really, uh, I got saved, when I got saved, my wife was about uh, seven months pregnant with our first child, so I don't really know much. Of, I only have a few months of experience of walking as a Christian uh, without being a parent. And so all of my experience of being a Christian has been as a dad and as a parent, and realizing that whenever I would read this verse, I would always fixate on the word provoke. I would always go there because I would think to myself, what exactly does the Bible mean by provoke? I don't want to do this. But I think the, the best way to look at this is to first of all look at lest they become discouraged and then back into what is meant by provoking. The lest they become discouraged literally means to lose heart. It means that they would become spiritless, that they would become apathetic, that they would, they would be void of passion and zeal. That's the result of a provoking parent on a child's life. They may be obedient, but they're simply following rules and they have no spirit within them. Their heart has been broken. I was reading a book uh, a while back and the author was describing his childhood growing up on a ranch and always being around cowboys. And he began to talk about um, the way that a cowboy would, or a ranch hand, or a rancher would break a wild horse. So, for example, what he was saying was, is that the way you break a horse, because you know I have such first-hand knowledge of this. I've broken many horses in my life. You know, I, I am a true cowboy at heart. That there is a progressive way that you break a horse. So what you do is you would uh, first maybe put the halter on the horse and you would leave it alone for a couple days and let it get used to the halter and then you would tie a rope to the halter and you'd lead the, the horse around by the, by the halter and then it would, you know, slowly get used to that and then after a few days it would be comfortable with that. You might lay a blanket on the horse so it would be used to something being on its back and so you give it some time with the blanket and then once the horse is uh, acclimated to having a blanket on its back then you would go and you'd put a bit in its mouth. And you'd put it in its mouth and you'd give it a little time, then you'd take it out. 
Then you come back the next day and you'd put it in, you'd leave it in a little longer, and then you'd take it out. And then eventually you'd put the bit in the horse's mouth and you'd leave it in there. And the horse would get acclimated to having the bit in his mouth. And then eventually would come the day that you'd set the saddle on the horse. And you'd just set it there. And the horse would have to get accustomed to having the saddle. And then after that, you know, you would slowly uh, begin to to cinch up the saddle and tighten the saddle because that's a very unfamiliar new sensation to the horse. And so it would get used to having a saddle and, and having it tightened around its belly. And then eventually the last thing you would do is you would very cautiously and carefully slide onto that saddle after the horse had been progressively acclimated to each of these phases of being disciplined into obedience. And and that would yield you this uh, wonderful, useful animal that would be a great blessing and value to the owner of the horse. But what we don't ever hear, see, or uh, unless you are you know, raised on a ranch or around cowboys, what the author was talking about is that there oftentimes are horses that are not willing to be broken. They're, they're unruly. And so they, the progressive uh, breaking of that horse doesn't work. And so there's another method that you can use, that you can deploy upon breaking a horse. And uh, it's, it's a lot faster. It's a lot simpler to execute than the first way. Now, I remember reading this. I'm thinking to myself, well, then why would you go through all the trouble of doing it the other way? And then he started talking about what this way is. He said, now, what cowboys and ranchers would talk about amongst themselves only would be how they would take an unruly horse who rejected a progressive breaking, and they would stand in front of that horse and they would hit that horse in the head with a two-by-four until the horse went down on its knees. And then once that horse went down on its knees, uh, you then had a broken horse. But breaking a horse that way comes at great cost because you don't have the same result as you do by progressively breaking a horse. If you break a horse that way, you have a horse that will obey you, but it has a broken spirit. It has no zeal as, a, as an animal. It has, it has very limited usefulness because it is simply a broken animal that will do what you tell it to do, but that's all it will do. And uh, it wouldn't, it's not the way that you would want to break an animal because basically it would have become discouraged. It loses heart. It's without passion. Now, I am not in any way equating breaking a horse to raising children, but I think that the illustration is very telling and it's very instructive to our hearts that as parents, and especially as fathers, we can, by brute force, create an environment where our children will obey the rules. But if we break their spirit in the process, what do we have? We have a discouraged child who has lost heart, which is why Paul puts the warning here not to provoke 
children lest they become discouraged. Now we need to have a conversation about provoking because we understand now very vividly what this discouragement might look like in a child. But what are the things that we would do that would be maybe on par with hitting a horse with a two-by-four? As horrible as that is to think about. Provoking. It means to irritate through perpetual fault-finding. To continually put down. To always find error in all things. You know, there are some people, believe me, I've met them, and they're so critical that it is nearly impossible to be around them. That as soon as the conversation starts, all you can think about is how are you going to get away? Because it's just criticism after criticism after criticism. Some of you undoubtedly in this room were raised by someone who broke your spirit by always putting you down, always criticizing everything that you ever did. And, and your heart is so devastated by what has happened. And you, as you grow in Christ and you begin to, the more you, you know about the Lord, the more you know about yourself and you begin to connect the dots and you see how so many uh, things that happened to you in your life and through adolescence and the decisions that you make and, and all the regrets that you have are linked to the fact that your spirit was broken, that you were provoked. I know that there are children all over this country this morning that are being raised in an environment of unrelenting criticism. It's like a storm that never seems to uh, be at bay. It's always raining down, no matter. Because let's face it, a parent can find something wrong with everything, with everything. And, and some people have just uh, wrongly assumed that their mission in life is to point out all of those things that are wrong, which is one of the most horrible things we can ever do to our children. Now, why is that one thing in particular so... Why do I start there? I mean, there's a lot of things I could say today, warnings that I could... Uh, say about fathers, a lot of things that you could learn from my mistakes. But why this issue of criticism? Well, I think that it's so pivotal because the Bible teaches that a child grows up looking for the blessing of the father. That, that there's this desire in the heart of a child to receive the blessing. The, to, to, to have this word of affirmation from, from the authority in their life, that, that things are going to be okay, that, that they have uh, uh, value and that they have worth and that things uh, for them are, can be okay and that the Father, as a Father, you love them. You know, tonight we'll be diving into this 
conversation deeper. But in Proverbs 18, verse 21, the Bible says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We have got to be very careful, especially as fathers, with the words that we use and the way in which we speak them because we can speak failure and even cursing and doom into the lives of our children if we become known in their lives as someone who is a perpetual source of discouragement. That, you know, sometimes you have to, uh, we have to work at this. But you see, this, this is what I learned early on in ministry. As God called me into ministry, uh, you know, only God would, would call someone who grew up in an atheist family without a father who doesn't get saved or even come into a church until he's 25 years old. Only God would call that person into ministry, not just into ministry, but into youth ministry of all things. What in the world would God be thinking to call me into trying to reach teenagers after the disaster of my life with the gospel of Christ? What do I know about any of that? And here's what I learned very quickly is that the world is filled with young people that are starving for the blessing of a father. So when you walk into that youth building, even still today, there's giant 20-foot scriptures on the wall, not just any scripture, but very specific scriptures. In other words, there'd be hundreds and hundreds of teenagers over there, most of whom have not grown up in church, who don't have parents who, would, who took them to church or even attend church, but they're over there because I would constantly pour into them that God loves them and has a plan for them. I would try to be someone who was bringing a blessing before them, and they would flock because they're starving for a blessing. You see, some of you right now, you are so deeply wounded as an adult because you never received the blessing from your parent, from your father. And so it's left this void in you and it's caused all sorts of of unruly things inside of you. And so I'm through this whole series in Colossians, I think today is the first time in all of these months that I have not opened this conversation without quoting the scripture out of chapter 2 that says that you are complete in him. Because you will never hear that enough. You will never hear that you're complete in him enough. You know why? Because there's so much broken in us that we don't feel complete. We don't think we're complete. We don't understand. Why how did the Bible says that? But, but how do I live that when it seems so foreign? Because we've not been, we haven't received the blessing. No one's come to us and said, you know, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. But we need to sit down with our children And we need to understand who they are specifically and uniquely. And we need to understand that our children, each of our children, regardless of whether they're all boys or girls or some combination thereof, are all unique and different. And they face different challenges. 
And that they have, there's going to be different areas of temptation in their life. But as a parent, we want to come into their life and we want to address them where they are. And we want to understand here are their weaknesses. Here is where they, they tend to be uh, self-conscious. These are the areas of their life where, they, where they're vulnerable to the voices of the world around them. And we want to speak in that context of them that they are, according to Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knit them together, that when they look in the mirror, that they don't see something that they regret, but that they see something that God created that way. It's so important that the the Bible says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They're, they're, they're thoughts that the Lord has about us, and they're, they're good thoughts. They're not thoughts of evil. They're meant to, to prosper us, that we might have a hope and a future, that God is encouraging us. We need to pour that into our children. That Listen, there, you can never pour the gospel into your children enough, but you can't just robotically transmit information. It has to be in the context of their life and who they are so that they will connect to it, that they receive it, that they, they get it. Oh, there's, you also need to understand that your kids, my kids live in a world that's filled with other kids that are searching for a blessing. And in their brokenness and their quest for affirmation, sometimes our children will be caught in the crossfire. So dads, let me specifically and very intentionally remind you yet again, if you have a daughter, you better affirm her, you better remind her on a regular basis how precious and wonderful and beautiful and spectacular she is because if you don't, someone else will. You have to do that. You need to hold her. You need to embrace her. You need to remind her because she is searching for the blessing of a father. And if she doesn't hear that from you, she's going to find a voice that will tell her what her heart needs to hear. It is so important. It's so important. You see, so many Christian homes. Listen, it, it's, we, we, we cannot uh, pass the buck. I mean, the church is in utter disarray in the United States of America today. And we are just as much to blame as the generation before us. We are not advancing the cause, but we're just compounding the problems that we've been given. So many of us were raised broken, and we've turned that brokenness right around and planted it right into our own children. And then what's happened is, in the context of Christianity, so many broken people come into the church and are wrongly instructed and then just, just panic and formulate a big pile of rules and try to create these little Pharisees inside their family, and you're just further destroying the whole entire process. For literally for 20 years, I have been saying... I've been quoting Josh McDowell for 20 
years, I've been saying rules without relationship will always yield rebellion. Always. The goal should never be to have children that obey all the rules. Because all you're going to have is a broken horse with no spirit. You've got to shepherd the heart of your child. There's got to be rules in the context of relationship. Aren't you glad that God doesn't call us to shepherd our children uh, one way and then he shepherd us a different way? In other words, all that I've said today is merely just a reflection of the way God shepherds us, right? He, God doesn't give you rules without the relationship. He doesn't do that. For example, when God says in John chapter 14, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Why doesn't he just say, keep my commandments? He's telling you that it's in the context of relationship. Think about the way God relates to us. He doesn't just drop the hammer on you every time you step out of bounds, every time you sin, every time you do something wrong. No. You know what he does? He gives you a little rope, and he gives you a little rope. And when you get too far, he reels you back in, doesn't he? Even, in the, even, in, even the Old Testament God shows up on the scene and, and gives the Ten Commandments. Now, it's not like God doesn't know that the first Mardi Gras is going down at the bottom of the mountain right then as all that's happening. He knows that's going on, right? I mean, he's got Bacchus going full swing at the bottom of the mountain. He realizes that. So he gives the Ten Commandments. And then what? The very next thing, first of all, he proved his uh, trustworthiness. He didn't say, well, now you're you're 400 years, you've been in bondage in Egypt, and so you need to follow these rules, and if you follow all these rules perfectly, I'll lead you out. Nope, he just showed up. He said, yeah, I know. You're not a people. You're a bunch of morons, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you out. And So then he miraculously leads them out and blesses them beyond anything they could ever imagine, Then he shows up with the rules. Then he immediately brings about a context for sacrifice. Why? Why does God immediately give the rules and then turn right around and say, now, here's the sacrificial system. Because he's saying, I know you can't keep all these rules. I know you're going to stumble. I know you're going to fall. So here's what you do when you fall, which is exactly what he's calling us to do with our children. We want to establish healthy boundaries. We want to establish the Word of God as the blueprint for life and godliness. But at the same time, we understand that we're never going to have perfect children. Well, I mean, where do we ever get that idea? Do we sort of forget? That's the one, one of the painful things about uh, being an adult now and visiting my mom. It's always painful because no matter what, when we're visiting my mom at some point in time, here's going to come another story that my kids are going to love. You know, because honestly, I just block out of my mind the terror that I was. And every time I, I don't ever say to my mom, ever, I learned this real quick. I used to say, you know, I'd tell my mom, you know, like, oh, you can't. You can't believe what Colton did, you know, yesterday, you know, he uh, drove his go-kart into the pond. And, you know, thinking my mom would go, really? Mm -mm. My mom says, hmm, 
Sounds familiar. (laughs) And then she'd start reminding me. She'd say, you know, have you forgotten that we got evicted from two homes because of you before you were eight years old? I said, yes, mom, I'd forgotten. Thank you for reminding me of that. You see, discipline is meant to be administered with encouragement. It's meant to come in the context of encouragement. Now, now I want to I, I just differentiate something here. There is a difference between praise and encouragement. I think that today, as I look at the landscape of, of modern Christianity, I see... Uh, parents who are very good at praise, but they're greatly deficient at encouragement. You see, praise is, oh, you know, it was amazing that you won the game or scored the touchdown or, you know, you're so excited because they made an A on their test or their report card was good or they did something great. And so you praise them for that. Now, that's not negative, but that's not encouragement. You see, praise is linked to uh, performance. And so what happens is when you are, when you are uh, filled with praise and deficient in encouragement, what you do is you create this performance-based economy that is anti-gospel. And then your kids grow up in church hearing the gospel through this performance-based filter, and it just totally wrecks their understanding of who God is. No, encouragement is not related to something that is achieved. Encouragement is tied to who you are. You see, you know that encouragement, you've never said, you know, I talked to so-and-so and and they really encouraged me. You know what is embedded in that statement? Is that I was down. You see, if I wasn't down, I wouldn't have said that. You see, when I'm down, when I'm struggling, when my performance isn't what I think it ought to be, that's when I need encouragement. Because there's not going to be any praise. I need encouragement. And what we need to do is understand that praise and encouragement aren't the same things. And a lot of people today are very, very gifted at praise, but they stink at encouragement. Listen, encouragement, there's no, there's no substitute for encouragement. Our children need to be encouraged. They need us to come around them and affirm them and bless them and put our physical touch upon them and say to them, I love you, not because of what you've done, but because of who you are. I love you because God gave you to me. I love you because you're my son or my daughter. I love you because I get the glorious privilege of shepherding you and, and, and raising you and seeing all the wonderful things about you. You see, we need that. And that's not, that's not you don't want to lie Because if you do, that's not going to yield anything. Your children are the best, uh, uh, they're the best discoverers of hypocrisy that ever lived. But we need to affirm and encourage them. And listen, the scripture is replete.
That's what God does to me every time I open the Bible. Yes, he slays me. Yes, he convicts me, but he always builds me back up. He always admonishes me. He always encourages me because here's the thing. He, he understands that I'm not going to be perfect, but that I'm, I'm striving to, to be pleasing unto him, but that he loves me anyway. See, that's the glorious thing about the gospel, rightly known and understood. Encouragement. We don't want to be a critical father. Now, just quickly, a couple more things, dads, that we, and moms too, but especially dads. You know, I really thought about, well, why? Why? Why didn't Paul just say, you know, moms and dads here? Because it, it it would have been good. I mean, it's certainly applicable. But I think the Bible is just simply pointing out that the greater danger here is for fathers. It just is. It certainly has been in my house. It certainly probably is in your house. And for a lot of reasons. But I think maybe one of those reasons might be that as dads, we typically are more isolated from our children. In other words, we're the parent that gets to spend less time with our children. Now, that's just the way in which it it normally is, but here's the problem with that. The problem with that is we're the parent who's less in touch with the feelings of our children. And you see, this is where my wife has instructed me so well. Because, you know, I, I would... I would do and say things that I shouldn't do or say. You know, I would, I would come barging in after a, a, you know, a 14-hour day at work and having not known the context of what's been happening in my home while I've been away and not understanding the, the feelings of my children because I simply didn't have the time that uh, my wife has had. Now, that's not an excuse. That's simply a reality. Now, on the flip side of that, uh, I read a, uh, an article recently that said that the average father in America spends less than one minute a day where their children have their undivided attention. I hope and pray that that is not the truth. If it is, what hope do we have? We don't want to be a critical source of discouragement. We want to be an encouragement to our children. Some children grow up with a father who is perpetually irritable or grouchy. Usually this stems from a deficiency within the father's character where the father is uh, um, not disciplined in the gospel and so the father is broken uh, and sensitive and self-conscious in ways that he's trying to overcompensate for and so he's always irritable, always grouchy. Uh, a, A father who feels continually defeated in their situation which again, I... I mean, just, let's just have an open conversation about this. You know, I understand, dads, there's some of you in this room, and you have a job that makes you miserable every single day you wake up. I understand that. I understand that. But to allow that to create in you a perpetual 
spirit of irritation and grouchiness is to utterly ignore and defy the sovereignty of God in your life. You just have to take it for what it is. Yes, it's, it may be hard for you. Yes, it may be a season. I don't know how long it'll be. It may be forever. But all I know is that God is sovereign and you're where you are and wherever you are, God has something for you to learn and some way for you to grow. And believe me, I'm not casting thro- stones from a glass house. I did my share of mully grubbing this week. If ever there was a week of my life where I thought, man, I don't know about all this. Five funerals in seven days. Merry Christmas. I mean, by the time I got to the end of yesterday, I literally laid on the floor of my office. And I just thought, I don't know if I have anything left. And it would have been very easy for me to say, you know, Lord, what are you doing here? I mean, I'm just trying to serve you and you're just pounding me in the ground like a nail. But you see, I have to stop and remind myself of the sovereignty of God and allow the truth of the word of God to speak into my heart and say, no, God's using that to strengthen me and to grow me, and to prepare me for whatever it is he has around the corner. And that in the goodness of his sovereignty, he hasn't called me to do anything he hasn't equipped me to do, and nor has he done that to you. We can discourage our children by being irritable or grouchy. We can discourage our children by having over-strict rules. Listen, the last thing I'm a proponent of is just... uh, I'm the poster child for what happens to you when you grow up in a home that has no rules. I literally grew up in a home where I could do anything I wanted to do. At, at 11 years old, I could literally stay out on the streets all night long and not even give account for where I was. I could do anything I wanted to do. And it was horrible. And all I wanted to do was spend time at my friends' houses that had structure. Because my heart longed for structure. It longed for the safety of boundaries and security. Because I always felt like I was just blowing in the wind out there. But the flip side of that is over strict rules. We can be so zealous about rules. And we can try to uh, encamp our kids inside the, the walls of our perfectly constructed rules and be so rigid such that we just break their spirit. We're not, we're not reasonable. We can't have a conversation about it. I love those moments in my life where I have been able, my kids have come to me and you can tell by their demeanor and their countenance when they, they, they come to dad and they, they know that dad's about to shoot down what they're bringing, but they, they come anyway. And that's an opportunity to have a conversation. In other words, I may still shoot it down. I try not to. But at least I want to have a conversation to say, listen, I'm open to discussing this with you. And I want you to understand my position and where I'm coming from so that we're on the same page. 
I regret the moments in my life where I've simply said, no, you know what the rule is. Now get out of my face. That's, that breaks the spirit and the heart of our children. I know that as a Christian father under the authority of God, I, there's a lot of things I can't say yes to. And so we made it a point in our lives, Lisa and I, to try to say yes to everything we possibly could. We longed to say yes to everything that we could because we knew that embedded in our belief system and the culture in which we live, there'd be ample opportunity for things that we would have to say no to. Over strictness usually stems from a heart of a parent that's ruled by fear. Therefore, they're overzealous in their rules or a father who's too lazy to investigate a situation. You see, I realize that the reason why sometimes I wouldn't take the time to have a conversation with my children about something that I ultimately knew I was going to say no to is because I was just too lazy. Because I didn't, I didn't want to invest the energy in sitting there and having a conversation about that. But it was important enough for them to come and talk to me about it. And so we need to realize that when we're over strict in our rules, it's our deficiency that's driving that. Or what about a distant parent? A parent that's unengaged, a parent who's not there. I know it's different for all kids. I know it's different for boys than it is for girls. But all I know is my own experience. I know that my dad left me when I was eight years old and it devastated me. And I grew up as a young man, bitter and rebellious because I felt like uh, I wasn't good enough and that my dad didn't want me. And when I grew up and I got older and I began to, to, uh, to you know, God put men in my life all along the way that took me under their wing and sort of nurtured me along and, and, and gave me hope and, and just shepherded me in whatever way they could. And God used that to salvage me. But I know that as I became a Christian, I had to face the reality that the first step I had to do was I had to absolutely, positively, once and for all, forgive my father in my heart or I wasn't going to be able to move forward. Do you know what the, and I remember this so distinctly, that of all of the things that I could have been bitter about, I mean, thousands of things that I missed out on by not having a father. But for some reason, the one thing that was at the forefront of my bitterness was the fact that in all of my entire childhood, I could never one time remember taking the field, looking up in the stands, and seeing my dad. That was the one thing that stood out to me more than anything else. Now, I say that to say this to you. You may be uh, the busiest person in the world. You may run a large company or have a million things bearing down on you, and you use that as a shield. Well, congratulations. I'll trade shoes with you any day. There is no excuse for being a distant father. None. God gave you children before he gave you uh, any occupation or any giftedness to do whatever it is you think you're called to do. 
So if you don't have time for your wife or your child, then you need to find another job. And if that means work at McDonald's and live in a tent, you'd be way better off. So what does God say to us about contagious parenting? Read a passage to you from Deuteronomy 6. Now you listen with ears have been informed by everything we've said. The Lord says now, this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord God has commanded to to teach you. That you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. That you may fear the Lord your God and keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you. And you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, O Israel, be careful to observe it that it may be well with you that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in the land of milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command to you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall walk, you shall talk of them as you sit in your house, and as you walk by the way, and as you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The command to to fathers and to mothers, to husbands and to wives, is a generational command. And we need to take seriously what God has called us to do. And we see here that we need to do this diligently, that it's going to be hard. You're going to have to work at this. You're going to have to strive at this. You're going to have to be consistent, and you're going to have to be obvious. In our library, we have tons of resources. The best book I've ever read on parenting is this book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. For $10, you get this book. For $5, you get this workbook. You sit down as a husband and a wife. You have small children. You go through this material right here, and it will transform the way you understand what it means to raise a child in the nurture and admonition of the gospel. If you have a child that's entering the teenage years, you should read this book. It's called The Age of Opportunity. It will teach you not to dread the years that are coming, but to embrace the teenage years. It's there for you to read, to be encouraged. If you're a father and you're, these conversations make you so uh, nervous and, and, and undone because you think to yourself, I'm not equipped for all this. I don't know, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know enough to do this. Yes, you, you do. We have books like this book. It's called Bite Size Theology that, that simply break down into little one-page theology lessons that teach your children about God. You could literally read this in 10 minutes and then sit down around the table or while you're driving in the car and just teach this to your children in the course of your daily lives or in some uh, formal time of family worship. There are these amazing children's commentaries on the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, each one is is. Amazing. They're commentaries written for children. When I first found these, I sat and read through all of them in one sitting. I couldn't put them down. It, it will make Genesis and Exodus come alive in your child's heart. We have families in this room right now that have gone through all of these with their children. They're amazing. In the back, they have, they have little uh, uh, 
crafts and memory things that you can do to help your kids to understand. They're right there in the library for you to get. It's not complicated. It's what I'm trying to tell you. You, you, uh, I, I told you that I, I, I take seriously the command of Deuteronomy 6 to, to put the word of God on the walls of your house. You, you can go to a website called christianstatements.com and you can buy whatever scripture you want for $25. They'll mail it to you and you can put it up on the walls of your children's room and in your living room and in the hallways. You can have the word of God there constantly there before them. Well, why wouldn't you? What else is going to be on the walls of your house? What do you want your kids to see every single day before they walk out of their room? What do you want your daughter to see every day before she gets dressed? What do you want your son to see every day before he approaches the temptation of the world? You're not going to have perfect parents. But let's leverage everything we can for the glory of God in the lives of our children. My kids are grown. Many of you are in the same boat I'm in. And you listen to all this and you're like, great. Well, that's what I say, great. A lot of times in a lot of ways. And you might say, well, my kids are grown and I've already failed and it's too late. And I say to you, no, that is a yet again a denial of the gospel and the sovereignty of God. The Bible says in Psalm 127 that... Children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, maybe you weren't the warrior you should have been when you had those arrows in your hand and you shot them errantly and they've flown miles off target. You know what I commend you to do today? I commend you to get on your face before God and begin praying every day with your spouse that God would send a wind, a wind that would blow that arrow back on course. Don't ever underestimate the power of God to change the circumstances of your home and family. That it's never too late. As long as there's breath in your and life in you, there's opportunity for God. We serve a God who says, I will restore even that which the locusts have eaten away. And so maybe your family is like a twig sticking up out of the ground and you're looking at your children and the wreck of everything that's happened and you're saying to yourself, I've blown it and it's all my fault. And I'll, Listen, that's not the gospel. The gospel is let's get on our face before God and pray that God would send a wind that would blow our wayward adult children back into our lives, that we haven't given up on them. And when we see them, we want to relate to them and encourage them in the gospel and not provoke them that they might become discouraged because Every broken heart can heal. Every broken heart can heal. And so it's not too late. And praise God. Praise God. The God of second chances. He gives us grandchildren. So we get to start afresh and anew. So many of you sitting in this room are here. Because a grandparent took you by the hand and brought you to church and talked to you about the Lord. Thank God that it's never too late. Let's stand. Father, we want to thank you for your word to us, Lord. And thank you for instructing us today, Lord. Help us now to receive what you have to say as it's meant to be received. Help our hearts to be encouraged by your 
high calling on us as your children and by the hope that always is there in the gospel. Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here that God, in this moment where it would be our flesh wants to reject the regrets of yesterday, that in the power of your spirit, in our weakness, your strength would be made perfect and we would open up our hearts to you and we'd receive the hope of the gospel. Lord, maybe it starts right now at this altar. We come and kneel down and pray that you'd send a wind into the lives of our grown children to bring them back on course. Thank you that it's never too late. Thank you for the, the moms and the dads here right now that have young, small children. God, what a blessing it is to be able to hear this now. Father, for every circumstance in this room, thank you for the grandparents, Lord. Thank you for those trips where grandpa or grandma takes me by the hand and, and takes them to go get something to eat and just spend some time looking into their little faces and telling them how proud they are of them and sowing the word of God into their lives. Thank you for that opportunity, Lord. Thank you for those who teach our children right now, for those who are about to go and, and come alongside moms and dads and shepherd our children, thank you. Lord, you're good to us and we love you and we want to respond rightly to you. We believe in your power and your sovereignty. And Lord, even if we've been ravaged by the locusts of this world, you can restore that. And we're grateful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar is open.